Welcome to Scores and Porters, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by me, Samoye Joe Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about shit we never talk about. <laughs> so for me that means I'm going to talk about Mozart, and Jill's going to talk about Chardonnay. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution. This podcast takes an incredible amount of time to make and write and produce. Um, you can do that on patreon.com slash scores and pours, and we've made it very easy for you by having a tier system where you can choose what tier works for you. You get patron-only content in all cases, and in some cases, you even get merch. And for those of you that just want to support scores and pours and love Love the logo, love the things. There's a link to buy merch there as well. Thank you to our existing patrons. We could not do this without you. What's up, Emily Reese? Hello, Jill Mott. How's it going? It's going great. I loved rekindling my love affair with Chardonnay this past week. Excellent. How yes. are you today? I kind of did the same with one of my favorite string quartets uh, this last week. Just Actually, the last few weeks I've been listening to it um, a little obsessively, and it's been great fun. You know, it's interesting because you, <laughs> you were like, I, we had this really great conversation actually yesterday, and it was a lengthy conversation about being a hater of these things because it's cool in, I would say, the natty wine world to be kind of a Chardonnay, not a hater, but like there's so many other cool and interesting grapes. Yep. Not a lot of people are as excited about Chardonnay as highfalutin wine aficionados with a lot of money mm-hmm. that can afford mm-hmm. top top quality Chardonnay, we'll say, quote unquote. Yeah. And I told you, I was like, dude, I think it seems like it's cool to not like Mozart. Like, I think it seems cool to be a hater of Mozart, to be like, oh, Mozart wasn't that great, or Mozart is not my favorite, or my favorite is someone more esoteric. Yeah, I think... Um my response to that was there's a difference between who is the best composer and who's your favorite composer. And, you know, I can see you having this conversation, you know, if you're speaking with a classically trained musician and let's say they play piano, I can see them perhaps saying Mozart's my favorite composer. What I think your response was, was that's a great show idea (laughs) (laughs) to talk about. Well, what is the what like why something is the best and why something yeah. is a favorite and yep. and why in in this case Mozart and Chardonnay like why yeah. they became why is it cool to blah 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 yeah I just and I I've said time and again because we've talked about this kind of topic more than once you and I not on the podcast but uh, I think I've said more than once that no one classically trained is going to deny the genius of Mozart it's just perhaps less common than you might expect for someone to say, Mozart's my favorite composer, unless, in particular, they're an opera singer or perhaps a string player who likes to play chamber music. For example, a string quartet player or a string quintet player. Uh, You know what I mean? But it's going to be unusual for a trumpeter Mm -hmm. or or maybe even a, a bass player. For instance, yeah. I mean, it would just be, well, those would be interesting choices. Not unheard of, but just, you know. Well, and you had made a really good point as well that I never thought of is that Mozart did so many things. Mm-hmm. So many people have copied his work and made it their own, of course, like made their own, yeah. their own take on that style Yeah, that you sort of don't listen to it 
ever thinking it was, there was a time where it was the first fresh. of its kind or fresh or anything, yeah. which is like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think of that when I listen to Mozart. I, sometimes I think like, this sounds like so much classical music I know, mm-hmm. yet yeah. if I really actively listen to it, yeah. not passively, and if I think about it, like, I, yes, I'm living in the late 17, early 1800s. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, oh, wow, that was... Because wasn't Beethoven influenced by oh, gosh, Mozart? Yeah. Like oh, heavily. heavily. Yeah, heavily. Everybody was after Mozart. Yeah. You know, I mean, absolutely. That's and crazy. Mozart was heavily influenced by Haydn after a certain point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, after those two met, his life changed uh, course a little bit. And, I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, Mozart did it and then was the giant that, that people stood on the shoulders of for centuries. It's still happening. I mean, yeah. Well, standing on the shoulders of, when we speak of greatness, yeah. most wine people that have, we'll say, been in the wine business for 15-ish years or more, so they have, they may have natural wine knowledge, but they for sure have classic wine knowledge, most people would not argue that Chardonnay is one of the most noble varietals on earth and one of the most high-quality white wine grapes grown. Mm-hmm. And I'm not either going to argue that or not. I'm just going to point out a lot of facts and let people make up their own mind. Just to refresh your memory, because we've talked about the parentage of a few different grapes, like Sauvignon Blanc on the show, Pinot Noir on the show— Chardonnay is no exception to its noble heritage, so they think that it is a natural crossing, meaning man did not make Chardonnay. It happened in a vineyard naturally, they think, somewhere around the Burgundy area, so eastern central France. And they think they know that it's a cross between Gouillet Blanc, which if you look at Gouillet Blanc anywhere, try to buy some, you can't buy some in the States. Gouillet Blanc is really only grown in Switzerland for the most part little bit in France where it's blended, and it's usually very quite expensive. Hmm. And Pinot, as we know, we've talked on the show before, Pinot has many different forms, not just Pinot Noir. Before it was Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris, there was like a parent Pinot. And so we know that Pinot, in some stage, was the parent along with Gouillet Blanc to produce Chardonnay, which is kind of cool. yeah. So speaking of all this nobleness, what do people have to say about... Chardonnay, because there are some pretty, you know, I think when we talk about Chardonnay, there's a lot of people that poo-poo Chardonnay, and I will talk about why, but I will give these examples as what a lot of people think of Chardonnay in the wine business. So I I queried about, I don't know, five or six friends, just quick text. Guys, what do you think of when you think of Chardonnay? My friend Gretchen and colleague, she gets back to me and says, butter and moms. (laughs) alluding to the malolactic conversion, the creaminess, the butteriness mm-hmm. that happens with a lot of Chardonnays that moms drink. My friend Britt says, my mom. <laughs> my friend Aaron Rolick, who works at Domain LA and Squirrel in Los Angeles, says, the color yellow, alluding to the color. And then Chablis. Of course, not probably, arguably, but, but not really some of the best Chardonnay in the planet. My friend Eric Freeberg, who's the owner of a great importer here in town, says, a city in the Macon. Chardonnay is a village in southern Burgundy. And he says, and overripe California wine. (laughs) Okay. And last but not least, my friend Graham Anderson, who I worked with in Chicago for the longest time, 
who lives in California now, says, First, a grimace, as I imagine a fat, over-oaked butterball from out here. Then I shake my head vigorously and imagine a lovely St. Alban and smile. St. Alban meaning a village in Burgundy that makes decent Chardonnay, balanced Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just funny uh, to hear what people in the wine world think of yeah. Chardonnay when you mm. mention it to them. A lot of pejoratives in there, a lot of mm-hmm. little sentiments, little pokes. So we'll talk about why they're right and why they're wrong in a little bit. Maybe let's listen to some music. Let's listen to some music, yes. Something pretty, Mozart's pretty. Mozart's great. And I mentioned earlier that a lot of opera singers love Mozart because Mozart wrote some of the best operas in the world. Wrote his first one when he was 11, so, you know, NBD. And, of course, Mozart didn't live very long. He was born in 1756 and died in 1791. So Mozart was alive and composing in the absolute heart of the Age of the Enlightenment. Okay, so wait, well, let me ask, let me ask, I I apologize that I'm digressing, so digressing to the beginning of our episode, but... Let me ask you, because why do you never talk about Mozart? Because I can say I don't ever talk about Chardonnay because Chardonnay is kind of, I don't want to say it's not cool to talk about because I'm the Mm -hmm. first one to not give a shit what anybody thinks about what I talk about. Yeah. But it's also sort of, it's been done so much. I Mm -hmm. think maybe just so many people have talked about Chardonnay that that's why I don't really bring it up. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that the same for you for Mozart or? Kind of. I think there are a lot of really complicated reasons why I don't talk about Mozart. He's not on my favorite. He's not, I love him. But when you ask me who my favorite composer is, I'm not going to say Mozart. Yeah, but we try to be really varied in scores and pours. Oh, yeah, we, we, you're We've right. been talking about yes. so many people that I've, there have been people I've never heard of. Yes. So, like, yeah. do you think it's just so many people talking about Mozart already? Why are we doing it here on scores? Sort of like it's been done? Maybe, and I, I don't know. Sometimes I think Mozart is really intimidating because, like, Schubert didn't live very long and wrote way more music than Mozart. But so it's not like his catalog is overwhelming because, you know, Bach wrote more music. Composers that lived longer than Mozart wrote more music. So I can't really say that his catalog is overwhelming. You know, I guess I don't really have a good a good answer for that. I, I know we talked about his Requiem yep. early on. And I'm glad that we've at least talked about that because that piece is... It's an good. absolute masterpiece. Well, and I, I just think his music is super beautifully complicated. But yeah. in a way that a lot of people, like you said, we kind of touched on before, don't give it credit because it's like there's so many others that... Yeah, and and also the thing, too, I feel like Mozart sounds pretty when you listen to Mozart. But if you don't understand the intricacies of counterpoint, it's harder to, I think, understand why he was such a genius. And that might sound really snobby and terrible, but it'd be like you giving me the most expensive Chardonnay or one of the best Chardonnays in the world, and I just don't have the reference point to understand why that's so great. I get that, for sure. So I think that that's kind of a little bit why Mozart gets almost just it's just assumed he's a genius so let's move on and talk about other people like you know what i mean like he just gets kind of shoved aside i, th- I, I think, think that's like a great way to put it yeah that was a great we should have gotten there like at minute four but yeah i, I, I got you okay well, so at least are, we showed up to the party it's you know? true what are we going to listen to at the party here we are going to listen to uh one of the best string quartets ever written and i love that uh we listened to one we heard one from beethoven from your friend alice 
in our previous episode, uh, a, a string quartet of Beethoven's that's considered one of the best in uh, the all the repertoire of string quartets, and this one as well is thought thought of that way. This is a string quartet that Mozart wrote and dedicated to Haydn, and actually Mozart wrote six quartets and dedicated all six of them to Haydn, and we're going to listen to the sixth in that set, which is string quartet number 19 by Mozart, and it's known as the Dissonance Quartet. That was a name that Mozart did not give to it. That's really common in music in that era, especially for uh, either publishers or critics or the populace to give them nicknames, not the composers themselves. Although it happened on occasion, this is a case where, again, Mozart didn't name it the Dissonance Quartet himself. But that's the nickname that it's known by now. And Mozart wrote all six of those quartets between 1782 and 1785, and they were published in 1785. So uh, let's listen to the opening of the Dissonance Quartet by Mozart. This doesn't sound to me like classic Mozart, right? I mean, when we think of like salon and very pretty and very pointy, is that is that like yeah, that's fair to say right around the corner. But yeah, this okay. this opening is why it has its nickname, dissonance. It might not sound as dissonant to you as you might expect, but back then this was very dissonant. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a, it's an unusual opening. To have it be so kind of crunchy and rot with emotion sounds in this like, way. Sounds like the end of every Spanish movie. <laughs> just, just black. Just not it's amazing. Just a black ending. <laughs> he could have learned this kind of emotion studying in Italy, but I don't think he ever studied in Spain. Yeah, it does get really Mozarty after this slow introduction. Yeah. And so you said four movements, right? Yep, four movements total, and uh, this one does pick up after this slow introduction. And uh, it's just a really pleasant, lovely... Very deep right now. Very... Mm -hmm. It's funny how it's, it's getting set up. Sorry. Joyful. I can't yeah. believe that this guy wrote, supposedly his first composition was like when he was four or five or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, was like, I, mean, I was like learning how to catch a ball. I was learning I was like, how to talk and read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so ridiculous. <laughs> Jeez. 
So in a string quartet, we have two violins, a viola, and a cello. There's no big bass in a string quartet, usually. Okay. There are exceptions to that rule, but not in a traditional classical string quartet. There tends to just be that. Two violins, a viola, and a cello. And listening to those four instruments have a conversation with each other throughout the whole quartet is, it's one of the most sublime things. The way he does back and forth mm-hmm. with the four instruments, kind of calls and responses. He'll have calls and responses with melody, and I'll point some of those out down the road. Yeah. And also some dynamics, you know, alternating quickly between loud and soft, loud and soft for contrast. There's just some really beautiful um, ways that those four players communicate together throughout this quartet. That's beautiful. I can't wait to listen to the second movement. Should we pop on to Chardonnay? Please, yeah. I'd love to drink some. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's drink some Chardonnay. Nice. I'll tell you a little more about the producer uh, when we get to talking about the region that this is from, because we'll definitely get there. Okay. Uh, But we are drinking a wine, a Chardonnay from Burgundy. That's that's all I'll tell you for now. Now, Chardonnay... uh, being a varietal, you can make a Chardonnay anywhere in the world. It's not a protected term. Chardonnay grows as far afield as Idaho <laughs> and China. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. So, Most you can definitely. have a Chardonnay and call it a Chardonnay. Correct. Most white Burgundy is Chardonnay. Okay. But obviously, not all Chardonnay is white Burgundy. And sometimes people don't know that. They, and I'll, we'll talk about how white wine became so popular that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Cheers. Just scores and Cheers. Just scores and pours. If wow. you say to yourself, it smells like white wine, it's probably <laughs> Chardonnay. Ah, <laughs> uh, really? Uh, yes and no. I'll I'll tell yeah. you why in a moment. What do you think? The color's like super apropos. Yeah, it's like Goldilocks hair. Yep. You know, or like straw kind yeah. of. That's exactly what we would call this yeah. in the wine in the wine world. This is like a medium straw color. It's not too yeah. dark, not too light. Mm-hmm. Looks slightly unfiltered. This has been very lightly filtered through basically a cheesecloth. Almondy, yeah. kind of. Yeah, almondy, a little honeydew melon, a little yellow, like golden delicious apple. Very yeah. quintessential minerals, wet chalk, wet minerals, very quintessential Chardonnay. I don't know who doesn't want to drink this. I, Why is everybody shatting all over Chardonnay? It's just so good. <laughs> it smells delicious. Yeah, I'm going right. to taste it. There's the butter, buttercream. Mm. I don't really get that here. Mm. I get buttercream a little. I get I get a little bit of lemon. Like lemon curd. I get lemon curd like when when it's lemony and, and citrusy. Yeah. And and it there's some sort of evocation of like light, very light thickness, but not at all like I don't get like ghee or or actual like mm. I get if butter was maybe a little sour. Yeah, like the lemon stuff in lemon meringue pie. Exactly, yeah. That stuff. And how lingering that acidity is. Just super boisterous. Yeah. I don't get oak. Mm -mm. That's because that's astute. This is is unoaked Chardonnay. Oh. Um, Isn't that sort of unusual? Isn't it more, or is it just, is that a myth? No, it's a, it's a, it is very unusual when we're talking about $10 Chardonnays. For it to be unoaked? For, yeah, because those a lot of those are done with oak chips to make them ten dollars or twelve dollars, and when we're talking about really high end Chardonnay, a lot of that is done in old old oak, so you get a little bit of that refined notion and complexity. But it, when things ha- are too oaky, it's usually a result of the barrel being either brand new 
or very, quite new. So mm-hmm. the juice in the wine leaches out all that flavor. You could get really high toast. Like you have different levels of toast in your oak barrels. So that could make it, if it's high toast, it's going to okay. make it oaky. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a quick moment. I want to, I wanted to kind of speak to my, those colleagues that I was telling you about and they were all saying buttery oaky and you just asked a question. Yeah. Like, and moms and why <laughs> this is not oaked. Oh my gosh. Why do we say this about Chardonnay? Okay, so in the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 90s, yeah, there was a very high proportion, there was a favoring of Chardonnay and whites in general, but Chardonnay with a lot of oak, a lot of extraction, a lot of malolactic conversion. So when that green apple acid, that malic acid becomes lactic acid, that was really heavily favored in Chardonnay. And they were either, you know, Chardonnay does have the potential to get kind of higher alcohol if people pick it too ripe. So they would almost be sweet, like overripe and sweet. And that's if they weren't already maybe a little back sweetened, because let's face it, people say they don't like sweet, but we're trained for a fast. So we like to say, yeah, I don't like sugar, but I'll have some sugar in my coffee and I'll have some bread that's got sugar in it and I'll have ketchup with sugar and all those things. Wine is no exception. And the association with grandmas and moms, I think, white, you know, I don't know why. I, I think there was a time where it was like, I mean, everybody that drinks wine, most smart people that drink wine like all colors of wine. But there was this sort of thing in the 80s and 90s that like women drink white wine and men are masculine, you know, drink yeah. red wine. And so that was, and it wasn't like necessarily like now it's cool to be like, I want a dry red wine. That wasn't necessarily the cool yeah. thing to say. So like yeah. there was this time where not only was that style favored, but right. then that's that style kind of became like a component of like women drinking wine for some yep. reason or some yep. association, which is weird. Yeah. I wonder how much of that came from media. If that was like a thing that a trend in film. I mean, I, ha- I just, you it know. It was for sure a trend in like point the point system and like people that we've talked about, Robert Parker, people mm-hmm. that would give, give wine points. It was like if they were sweeter, mm-hmm. oak is a way to make things. I mean, let's face it, bourbon seems yeah. sweet. I mean, in terms of men oak. drinking red and oh, women drinking white. I don't white. know. Yeah, that I, don't couldn't, know I couldn't say for yeah. sure. Service professionals, though, I mean, if you ask anybody that I know, we can ask all these people. If you say, if they get a customer that comes in, man or woman, that's like, uh, I'd like a Chardonnay, and you don't have a Chardonnay on your, your list, the first question is going to be, you know, do you want something oaky? Is that why you want a Chardonnay? Because a lot of people that just order Chardonnay like blindly, yeah, it's usually because they want something oaky. That's just like an association that we have, which is like rather disappointing. Um, But whatever, it's just history. And why Chardonnay? Like why did this happen to Chardonnay and not say flipping Pinot Grigio or Sauvignon Blanc? (laughs) Chardonnay is a goddamn weed, okay? It grows everywhere, like I just mentioned. It's very easy to grow. The favor for white wine drinking that I mentioned in the 80s and 90s because Chardonnay was so popular, there was an increase in plantings at that time, almost simultaneously, so much so that in North America, South America, Australia, places that didn't really have like a wine history of hundreds or thousands of years, Chardonnay became synonymous with white wine as opposed to Pinot Grigio being synonymous. So that sort of all of that happened at once for there to just be this huge influx of plantings Chardonnay slash white wine drinking, and then over-oaking, 
and that flavor kind of becoming like what people associated with what white wine is is being consumed nowadays, which is sure. which is kind of crazy. So much so that like the world over really started to plant Chardonnay. So when I say Idaho and I say China, I can also say Texas, Ukraine, Brazil, Croatia, and then all the places you'd suspect. Yeah, Italy, California, it, Italy. Italy, Italy yeah. It grows very prevalently in, in Lombardia, specifically for a sparkling wine called Francia Corta. But it's, you know, obviously France, the plantings, you know, increased. Mexico. Germany? What do they call it in Germany? They used to call it, I think it was called uh, Rulander. But Chardonnay, because it is so famous, it has very few synonyms, which is really rare. Mm. The one exception, I know like Switzerland, they call it Morillon or Morillon. Two L's, but other than that, I mean, wow. there are a few, but yeah. they're not used really. Sure. So, Amazing. I don't know. Do you like the wine? Oh, I think it's delicious. And I think one of the reasons I personally like it is because it's not oaky. <laughs> well, and Since I know you, you like a there. bottle full of min- minerals too. I do love a bottle full of minerals. That's like I could just probably mm. die from drinking that just endlessly. I love it that much. Oh, this Mineral. was like this is a del- this is one of my favorite wines. I mean, I know 2021 is young yet, but uh, it's one of my favorites. A lot of like perfect with shellfish. This would be great with oysters if you like oysters, seafood, salads. Like this would be perfect with like a pasta with a really just light sauce that's not a red mm-hmm. sauce. Sage I also, butter. Mm. I also really love acidic wines and this is not super high acidity. It's definitely got acid, but I like that it's kind of subtle. Acid, you know, it's it doesn't punch you in the face. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I think it's medium high. Yeah, that's. I, I agree yeah. with you. I think it's definitely on par with a lot of acidic wines and and kind of go, getting up there. But is it riesling like acidity? No. Yeah, no. But is that accentuated because it hasn't spent time in oak? With oak, there's a certain amount of breathing. Okay. Right. Oxidation. Yeah. yeah. And an acid very slowly decreases more in oak than it would in stainless steel where it doesn't have anywhere to go. Oh, sure, You know, yeah. so that you, we maintain this liveliness because it's in stainless, which is cool. Neat. Yes. Should mm. we second movement before we get talking? Because I'm going to yeah. start quoting Jancis and we're, I'm not going to yeah. stop talking. So. <laughs> Let's definitely listen to the second movement. Uh, the second movement of the 19th String Quartet by Mozart is so, so beautiful. And uh, after you hear, this is in uh, a form... Uh, which when we talk about form in music, it's kind of like a roadmap, right? How are we getting from the first note to the last note and what's happening in between and in what order and things along those lines? There are rules about so that. So if, if you would in the Venice world, yeah. it would be the Appalachian rule book. Yes. How can you make champagne mm-hmm. be champagne? Here you go. Yes. Okay. Yes. And of course there are a thousand ways you can do certain things in that rule book to in some ways to make it sound individual, but it's yeah. still, let's call a spade a spade. This is Exa- a certain uh, yep. kind of form. Yep. And uh, so the second movement, the first movement is in this form as well. It's called sonata form. Okay. And in sonata form, there's a primary theme and a secondary theme, a main theme and a second theme, you know, um, very common process in all kinds of forms of music to have more than one theme. And after you hear, well, let's listen to the to the first theme, okay, really quick in the opening of the second movement. Mm-hmm. 
So is he presenting this first theme? Is that what he's... Yep, this okay. is what we're hearing, right? Primary theme. Here's the secondary theme, this beautiful call and response between the violin, cello, violin, cello, violin, cello, violin. And this rhythm recurs over and over through this whole movement. And it's absolutely beautiful, kind of in a way like you would think of Beethoven using the four notes from the Fifth Symphony over and over and over again. Yeah. Yep. And so this is da 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 da, and that just comes back over and over again through this whole. It's beautiful. So let's go ahead and skip forward so you can hear how that theme is used, particularly in the section of this piece, which is called the development section. And in this form that I was talking about, where we've got the primary theme and the secondary theme, the middle part known as the development section is where some of those themes are manipulated and developed into more interesting things. So uh, let's hear how he manipulates it in that middle section of the second movement of this uh, 19th string quartet. So I noticed just right there, it was like, it sounded like do 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 do, but it wasn't major. It was like do 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 do. So is he playing with like, you know what I mean? Is he doing mm-hmm. it? In, so, I mean, obviously it's purposeful, but is he like, like, what is that called? What is he doing? He's using a lot of chromaticism. Okay. And so he's using a lot of notes that aren't a part of what key we're in. Okay. Oh my and gosh, just, it just makes me want to drink some Chardonnay. Yeah. Do you you need me to fill your glass, Ms. Reese? I do, whether it's empty or not. My scores and pours servings are often rather dainty. Because we want to maintain our heads clear while we're deciphering beautiful music and wine. At least while we're recording. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hilarious. But I also, I just think when, you know, we sometimes we're like... Jesus, we're drinking fast. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I just gave you a half an ounce. What, what, what's happening? Just a little boop of just some Just a little Chardonnay. boop. It's true. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I love this wine so much. So see, that seemed not as slow and not as, as but it seemed as, as thick, mm-hmm. but not as, it seemed emo, but a little, <laughs> little bit faster tempo. Yeah, well, I think the, the, he's using that rhythm to kind of maintain momentum in what is a pretty slow tempo. One, two, three, one, two. Ba-da-ba, so is it in three, four? One. Yes. One of my favorite things about the second movement is the ending, because I think it's just such a beautiful ending. So let's quickly listen to the ending before we go on to more Chardonnay. 
Da, 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 da. So pretty and delicate. Mm-hmm. And I just love how welcoming and inviting the end of that is because it just draws, because it gets softer, right? Mm-hmm. And you just, you're almost leaning forward in your chair. Yeah, to what's next or what's, end. yep. Yeah it's, yeah, it's brilliant. I love that. Okay, so to me, you, I think you said waiting for the end and I'm like waiting for what's next. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Speaking of gorgeous. Yeah. Jancis Robinson couldn't have put Chardonnay and the reason why Chardonnay is so popular slash the potential for great quality. She couldn't have put it better. I'm going to quote her book, Wine Grapes, because I think she does really hit the nail on the head. She said, It is arguably the most versatile white wine grape. Without a dominant flavor of its own, it can take on a wide array of aromas depending on where it is grown and particularly how it is made. And so that, in tandem with it being easy to grow, makes it this vehicle for terroir. That's awesome. I've mentioned terroir plenty of times on the show before. Terroir is, people say it's not, you know, when wine people talk about terroir, a lot of times they omit the man-made part of terroir and the history, but I think that it's sort of, I don't want to say it's selfish because it seems the antithesis of that, but it just, it doesn't, wine is inevitably a man-made thing, right? So terroir is, are all the natural elements that are happening in a in a specific climate that allow f- and ge- geographically ge- geologically that allow a wine to taste the way it does some parenthetically would say omitting man-made processes but i think it's in history but that's sort of difficult to say mm-hmm. and to this is of selfish but difficult to say and when we think of terroir why is chardonnay so popular well i mean look at the success of Besides being easy to grow, Chablis, so northeastern France. Champagne, also northeastern France. Burgundy, central eastern France. And to some extent, California. There are certain places in California where when it's not over-oaked, it can really showcase where it's grown, being a little more sun-kissed than France, of Mm -hmm. course. But Chardonnay seems to do really well on chalky limestone soils. Mm -hmm. And when we think of these few places in France I just mentioned— that's like in spades. And in the smallest, like imagine that you have the colors of the rainbow of sand and you're going to fill the colors of the rainbow and we'll just make it easier. Say you have red and blue sand. Yeah. And you have a ball jar. And you're going to, you know, you're going to blend whatever you think is pretty and I'm going to blend whatever is pretty. Now, granted, we're dealing with geology in terms of soil. So the chalk limestone ratio is where I'm getting at here. If you gave 100 people blue and red sand to put in a ball jar, they're all going to be a very slightly different color. Are they going to be ribboned? Is it going to be one and then the other? Is it going to be all mixed together and shaken up? And so the because Chardonnay is rather neutral, you really get this ability to magnify, is it grown on the north side of the slope or the south side of the slope? And with a lot of grapes, that's hard to get to because they have an oily nature or they're really aromatic or they're this. And so like Chardonnay just is like, instead of having to sift through all of that, you just are, soils are right there. The problem lies is, and the sun-kissed nature, like if it's more sun-kissed, it's a little more tropical and less stone fruity and vice versa. And then you have the producer, 
which obviously are they going to age it in oak or are mm-hmm. they going to let, let it hang a little longer? Most producers of, of really refined Chardonnay are going to not do it in old, like in a lot of new oak to erase all that work that they're paying rent on those vines or they own those vines, right? So you want to do as little to interfere with that as possible and new oak does that in spades. The problem is, is that became the favor in the 80s and 90s, and then you had bad Chardonnay, which is why it got a bad name. But for all intents and purposes, people that know really fine wine and drink a lot of old, old school classic wine, man, you can taste the difference between, I mean, you and I sit six feet away at the in the booth. You could taste your grapes grown six feet away on one row and mine on another row. Amazing. If we both made wine the same way. Because you were right there. And yeah. Chardonnay has the ability to do that because it is so neutral. That's amazing. Which some people say is boring, but then if you're really looking for terroir. Right, exactly. But then you have to be in the mood to think about it and not just chug it, you know, yeah. which is like a lot of natural glue these days. Yeah. Which is why Chardonnay isn't really highly favored in the natural wine mm. world, I think. Interesting. One of the reasons, yeah. you know, it can be delicious yeah. in a pet nat or something, but people mm-hmm. then just, they're not thinking about terroir. They're just like, let's just drink this, yeah. you know, which is, I don't know. Yeah, you would think if terroir is important, then this would be an excellent grape for you. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if so why go out into the world of wine and be like, oh terroir is so important and then be like, yeah, but it's uncool like Chardonnay, if Chardonnay has the ability to absorb terroir to the degree that it does. Well that's a great point. I think that a lot of natural wine fiends out there that may not have tasted 400 versions of Chardonnay coming from X Premier Cru or Y Grand Cru, you know, don't have that historical context of how transparent Chardonnay can be. And right now it's kind of all cool to like all kinds of other hip grapes. And so Chardonnay just gets lost in the shuffle, really. More Mozart? Yes. Okay. So let's third movement. So... The third movement is what's called a minuet and trio. And I love this minuet and trio so much. Minuet and trio also implies something very specific in music. And so with a minuet, you hear the minuet part first, and everything repeats a couple of times. Then you hear a trio, which is in a different key and usually a different mood or something. And everything repeats in the trio a couple of times. And then you go back to the minuet. So it's kind of in three parts-ish. So let's listen to the first part. And uh, we'll listen all the way through the the first part because I absolutely love the phrase, how he ends uh, this this minuet. I think it's, again, just really beautiful writing because he kind of... um, does some something kind of fun rhythmically with the with the final part of uh, the anyway let's hear the beginning of it yeah More dynamics, right? Like lots of loud, soft contrast. Yeah. And just this ending motive right here is so lovely, right here. 
And when you say motive, do you mean do you motif? Is that what you're? Yeah, okay. yeah, just a little fraction of yeah. the phrase itself. Yeah. This is all still part of the minuet. You can maybe tell we're kind of in the same mood, you know, a little yep. bit, like same kind of tempo and emotion. So as we're listening to this beautiful quartet, yeah, I can't help but think, so many people talk about the fact that Mozart was kind of an asshole. Yeah. And yeah. is that like common, like everybody knows that? I think, I mean, someone that writes like this, I mean, they have to be eccentric, like, I mean, you're obviously brilliant and you're yeah. kind of eccentric and you... Yeah. I think his childhood didn't do him any favors, honestly, just because his um, dad was a bit of a stage dad and carted them around, him and his sister around everywhere. His sister was about four years older than him, and they were really close. They were the only surviving children of that family. And uh, she was the first one to learn piano, and that's how Mozart got interested in it. Mozart ended up learning violin all on his own volition. Uh, and was uh, apparently just a, a sick talent at the violin and viola. And in fact, when these string quartets premiered, he was the viola player. Oh, really? um, wow. But in any event, that's kind of getting off off topic, off topic, that I think his upbringing, being on the road constantly, being, you know, they, they all were sick on the road. I mean, it was just a rough, really rough childhood, I think. And uh, I think kind of being... Put, a little bit like on, the Jacksons, like what you know. I mean, the maybe, Jacksons all they were all had each had their issues to a, and to a different extreme, I think. And in that, you know, he just knew that people wanted to hear him play, and it didn't matter kind of how what kind of a person he was. But I know he had valuable relationships and friendships too. It's not like mm -hmm. everybody hated the guy. That couldn't be farther from the truth, especially Haydn himself had a deep affection for Mozart and vice versa. And they had a really special caring relationship, you know? So it's not like he was a dick all the time. Yeah. It's just, he kind of had an, uh, a reputation for being a little bit of a kind of maybe a little uncouth, mm -hmm. a little tactless, you yeah. know, maybe. So, which I think if you're that much of a genius and you have had a weird childhood and yeah. you have money problems, you're kind of going about the world and you are, you know, he, I know he was kind of sickly throughout his life, wasn't yeah, he? On and off. Kinda, so, like, yeah. all that stuff, you just like, yeah, you probably get to a point where you're like, F this, man, like, yeah. just whatever. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. not, you know, hopefully he wasn't like treating people poor, like uber poorly. No, like, I don't, I don't, maybe think if his so. responses, a lot of people could get, could, things could be a little bit maybe different also mm -hmm. if people were not so like, let's just sugarcoat this all the time. Let's sugarcoat things. Yeah. So like get to the heart of whatever. I yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, to speak just a little more about the relationship between Haydn and Mozart, Haydn was much older than Mozart and Haydn uh, just thought that Mozart was unmatched talent and uh, Mozart just really cared deeply for Haydn as an influence and all of that. And so one of the things that Mozart did is when he when he dedicated these string quartets to Haydn, he basically was like, 
it's one of the most endearing things you can read because you can look up, you know, what's a dedication because when Mozart sent these quartets to the publisher, he included a dedication and it just, it basically talks about how wonderful of a person Haydn is, how he's a highly celebrated man and here are six of my sons, as in my children. I'm I'm entrusting you with six of my children that this means so much to me to give you these things that are important to me, mm-hmm. and you're my dearest friend, and it's just absolutely beautiful tribute to him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, you want to hear the trio? Yes, yeah, I do. So this is still a part of that third movement. This is the middle section of that third movement known as the trio. And you'll notice a mood change from what we had been hearing in the minuet to the trio. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the trio continues, and after the trio concludes, we go back to the beginning to hear the minuet again. So there you go, third movement. And we can uh, listen to the fourth movement after we drink some more Chardonnay and talk more about Chardonnay. Yes. Let me tell you about what we're drinking. Please, Because then I'm going to rattle off a bunch of facts that are going to leave you, like, bewildered at how much Chardonnay there is in the world. Awesome. This is from a producer that we really enjoyed their gamay a few weeks ago. Sweet. And I couldn't help but really want to taste this new vintage of this wine. So this is Celine et, which means and, Celine et Laurent triples. They're located in a region called the Macon, which were in Burgundy, which eastern central France, and we're in southern Burgundy. So we're north of Beaujolais, and we're south of the Cote d'Or. Chardonnay country par excellence. Grow other grapes there too, but Chardonnay is what is famous. Now, I'm showing Emily on the Bourgogne Appalachian website. It's kind of cool because this is specifically called Macon Locher, which means Macon that is has a village that is a little bit better than the uh, uh, just a village Macon. And so we're saying instead of saying this is from Minneapolis, we're saying this is from the Longfellow neighborhood. We're giving it a little bit, Minneapolis Longfellow, we're giving it a little yep. bit more of an area. Okay. And so look at how many of them there are in the Macon, and all of these are supposedly a little bit yeah. different. Ten? Which is, yeah. Is that what? Yep. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating in the fact that these all are, have different flavor profiles. Yeah. Some people would argue, okay, well, people had money, and they could sleep yeah. with the right people, whatever they need to do, and get their name appended so they can sell it for more money, right? Because you mm-hmm. can sell... Macon Rocher for more than Macon. Not the case here because the wine is superb. The terroir is superb. And so to show you how small of an area this is, I'm showing Emily a map now that you can download. So the Macon Rocher on the vineyard map that we're looking at is literally these few little dark green blocks around the village of Locher and, you know, the surrounding vineyards that are of different colors that are the greater Macon greater Burgundy, and it's really only 25 hectares under vine to be able to say, I'm making Macon Locher. These folks, they are, they've been biodynamic and organic for, I want to say, over a decade. And in this case, they're working with 30-year-old vines, 
Of course, limestone clay soils are key here, but it's a little bit warmer here than it is on the Cote d'Or. The aspect is not as not as intense, it's not as dramatic, and so whether it's on this east or west slope, that all has a little bit less of a importance here. And so it's just really interesting to taste this over a Chardonnay that is made in stainless steel, like this is made, Yeah, somewhere on the Cote d'Or. Here, this spends about 10 months in stainless steel on the lees, which is nice. That lees is maybe where you get a little bit of that creaminess, okay. just a yeah, touch. Yeah, yeah. But they're not sitting, stirring it up, stirring it up, because the more you stir up those lees is the more like if you are steeping, steeping your tea and you oversteep it, yeah. the more time it spends on the lees up until a certain point, if you stir, 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 you're like accentuating that creaminess, accentuating okay. those tannins, Sure. right? So the very light filtration, like I said, just basically to get rid of flies and stuff, mm-hmm. bees. Mm-hmm. And then they're adding no sulfur to this, oh. which is really, yeah. really rare in the world of yeah. Chardonnay in France, in, in Burgundy. It's so delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that if you are into classic wines, we'll yeah. say not natural wines, yeah. you will love this because you'll say, For wow. Sure. Tastes like Chardonnay, tastes like Burgundy, it tastes like the Macon. You know, you get this mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. very crisp, all the melon, all the, the um, stone fruit flavors, dry, mm-hmm. medium bodied. But if you like natural wine, you would also like it because it doesn't taste overly sulfuric. It doesn't taste confined. It does taste like with this little notion of like nod to great farming, natural yeast fermenting, yeah. you know, it's just it's a really cool... Yeah. Really cool stuff. You want a couple amazing... Yes. Tell me how much Chardonnay is in the world. (laughs) It's just insane. Chardonnay has been in the world for over 500 years, they think. Okay. First mention was made in like the 1580s, but Chardonnay was also confused with a lot of other grapes at that time. So the real first mention that's a little more reliable, 1685 to 1690 in an area called La Roche Venus. All right. So Johann Sebastian Bach, Jean-Philippe Rameau... Domenico Scarlatti, all born around 1685, just so we're clear. Yeah, so their parents, if they were born in the right place, (laughs) could have been drinking some of the first Chardonnay, (laughs) but they probably weren't. Probably not. So this is northwest of where we were just talking about, that village of Macon and Locher. We're like northwest of that, less than a 20-minute drive, really. And in the world now, fast forward 500 years, we have 520,000 acres of Chardonnay is planted worldwide. And to give people an idea that might not be able to comprehend that, that's over 800 square miles of Chardonnay. Think of driving to, from here, we drive to Madison, that's yeah. 300 or something. Yeah. 800 square miles of Chardonnay that's, in the world. That's like the size of Minnesota or something like that. I don't, it's not quite that big, but it's pretty big. Chardonnay is the second most planted white grape in the world. What's the first most? Aiden in Spain. And the reason why that is is because Aiden covers more, it's planted further apart because of lack of water, find a vine. So it covers more hectares. Oh. Because a lot of it is sent for distillation. A lot of people that are going to spike their port with, well, okay. it usually needs to be Portuguese, but if you're going to, you know, use your Everclear to make whatever, yeah. it's probably coming from Spain. Interesting. So Aiden is. The main one, but Chardonnay is the second most planted grape Amazing. in the world. Scores and pours, everyone. Or white grape. I know, freaking scores and pours. Gotta <laughs> love us, man. It's the fifth overall of any grape. Cabernet, Tempranillo, all those things, Sauvignon Blanc. Merlot. Yeah. 
including Merlot. It is the fifth most planted grape overall. There are in California alone, one-fifth, basically, of what's planted worldwide. There are 93,000 acres in California. Huh. It is the highest planted white grape in California, and just shy of 20% of all wine sales in the United States. All wine sales in the United States. Now, I confirmed this on two different websites, so there may be some that don't state this. Yeah. Our Chardonnay. Wow. That's a lot of fucking Chardonnay. That's a lot of fucking Chardonnay. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so insane. But I love it. I'm so glad we did a show on shit we never talk about because I love me some good Chardonnay. I love me some Chablis. I love me some Natty Chardonnay. Yeah. It's just, yes. Yes. Back to classics, people, sometimes. Yes. Speaking of back to classics, let's Mozart. Please. Let's listen to this fourth movement. Also in sonata form, but a little bit of a variant of it. Now, granted, I don't want anyone to think they're missing out on information. We really have not gone into great detail about sonata form on the show. It's kind of getting into the weeds a little, but... um, I mean, welcome to Scores and Pours. Yeah. So this last movement is also in sonata form, but it's a little kind of a variation on sonata form in that it's also a rondo. And we've talked about rondo before being where you have the first thing theme that you hear, then you go on to another theme, then you go back to the first theme, then you go on to a different theme, then you go back to the first theme. So I always use fruit. Oh, yeah, Apple, yeah. banana, yeah. apple, orange, apple, grapes, apple, cherries, apple, strawberry. You're always coming back to that. And then what, hap- what about, can you, do you mind just refreshing everybody's memory for those listeners that have heard sonata form but don't really remember what it is? Yeah, so in sonata form, some people think of it as two big parts. Some people think of it as three parts. It's a little bit of debate in the world of music as to whether sonata form is whatever, but I'll just explain it as... Uh, in the first part, uh, which is known as the ex- exposition, you hear the two main themes of the movement. So you hear a primary theme, you hear a secondary theme. Then you hear a development of those themes, usually in a different mood, in a different key, goes into a bunch of different keys sometimes, kind of all over the place, the development. Then we come back to the opening material in what's known as the recapitulation. And oh my there, gosh, so is this, is this like a okay way to, I've just thought of like a love letter. <laughs> so it could be like, I love you. Yeah. And then it'd be like, let me count the ways, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then it's like, at the end, it's like, I love you. Is it like, is it like, I don't know why that Kind just of, there'd in. have to then be a middle part where you're talking about your love, yeah, but that's in what, more, that's, a more eccentric way, maybe just kind yeah, of Yeah, let me count the, the ways. That's all the let me count the ways. And then there are all these things that you, because yeah. you wouldn't just count, you wouldn't be like number one. I love right. that you blah, number Just two, don't you, forget that in the first part of Sonata Form, you need two themes. So it oh. can't just be I love you, and then the development is I count the ways. It'd have to be I love you, let's buy a green house. Oh, yes. Then okay. let me count the ways. Yes, yes. Then I love you again, and let's buy a green house, but in a, in the main key, and then yeah, we're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll add love some this. new material love at this. the end and a coda. We've talked about coda before. So that's kind of how Sonata Form works. If it's a sonata rondo form, that primary theme, (laughs) I know, comes back in varying ways and the development is kind of considered something a little different. It's just a little twist on sonata form. I like you. 
I love you. <laughs> Wait, I kind of want to break up with you, <laughs> I, but I like you anyway or something. Okay, I got there you. There are definitely some movements of symphonies and piano I've been watching a lot of rom-com like lately, so sorry. So let's listen to a little bit of this last movement. Very energetic final movement of Mozart's 19th string quartet, the dissonance string quartet in C major. Quintessential Mozart right there. Yeah, it's very Mozart-y. If you're looking for, you know, if you type in Mozart String Quartet 19 and look for a recording. There are actually lots of great recordings of this quartet. Emerson String Quartet, you kind of can't go wrong with Emerson. We're listening to Quartetto Italiano, and I love this recording of that. Thank you for bringing this delicious Chardonnay. Do you have any closing Chardonnay thoughts as we listen uh, to some uh, the final movement of this beautiful Mozart string quartet? I do. I think that listeners of Scores and Pours, we, we pride ourselves as co-hosts to bring you things you may not know and may not have heard of and try to, like, you know, amuse you and entertain you with, like, new wines or new factoids. But... There's a reason why certain things are considered the best, and they may not be our favorites, and sometimes they are. But let's pay tribute to some of the tastemakers, if you will, some of the most popular composers and grapes on the planet. So here's to Mozart, and here's to Chardonnay. And hopefully many more conversations about them both. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. You'll also find a link there to our really cool merchandise, which includes hoodies and t-shirts. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours. Please send us a DM. Let us know if you've got show ideas or uh, what your thoughts are. And give us a rating where you listen to your podcasts. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their dope music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June. Little kitty. <laughs> <laughs>